Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. <laughs> Where two friends pick two topics and find intersectionality. Or not. And do I have a treat for you? Okay, I'm so excited. <laughs> what is it? So <laughs> I want you to reflect when I show this to you the last time that we experienced this together. Okay. In my hand, I have my eighth grade diary. (laughs) And in my eighth grade diary is the gems of the world, I swear to God. My favorite poem of all time is in your eighth grade diary. The, I, I thought that I was very deep. I thought that I... You were so deep. Was really good at poetry. My handwriting is atrocious of course it is and i have a lot of feelings <laughs> i mean a think lot of about, that's still true though think about the time in your life when you have so much angst and so little control of your life <laughs> and no processing skills no like processing no skills. one's teaching you about meditation and mindfulness no especially not you know, eighth so, grade angsty Allison. Yeah. So these these poems are dated. The one I'm going to read to you is dated uh, February seventh, two thousand five. <sighs> okay, my body is ready. So just to do some some background, two thousand five was kind of uh, a hard time. It was in the the Bush administration. Okay, and um, that's what my poem is about. <laughs> <laughs> so this way would have been, I guess, in the eighth grade. Okay. So what are you in the eighth grade? 12, 13? 2005? Mm-hmm. 14. 13 14. to 14. 13 to 14. This poem is called President. The people all come together to put in their thoughts and opinions, for they are choosing one person with a heck of a lot of commitments. <laughs> for some, they like a donkey. For some, they like an elephant. <laughs> But they all tell lies, <laughs> kiss babies, and they usually like them intelligent. <laughs> the people have their thoughts on how one guy will get smushed. <laughs> Whoever thought that that guy wouldn't be George Bush. <laughs> this is still my favorite thing. The last time I read this, I threw up into my arm. Do you remember that? I think I peed my <laughs> a lot of uh, A lot of fluids. It's a thing. Okay. We are fighting in a country where they didn't ask for help. We have many people dying left lifeless by themselves. Mm-hmm. My point is this. We're just changing the rhyming scheme here. My point is this. <laughs> they dig us in a hole, leaving us unhappy to rot and to Spoil. <laughs> to spoil. <laughs> and then it says, Love Allie. <laughs> you are so um, cute. So I, I forget. Like, I, the reason that I wanted to talk about this today was just kind of um, understanding that a lot of people have thoughts and feelings when you assume that they're incapable of, like, knowing what's going on around them. So even as a 14-year-old, I could understand that you know, in my 14 year old brain, I really wasn't happy with what was happening, uh, in the political climate. So I'm really, um, 
looking forward to the Donald Trump poetry we'll be <laughs> reading <Excellent>. about. <laughs> yeah. um, it's so interesting. I had a um, similar like poem journal, and I wish I could find it. But I remember so distinctly uh, writing probably a little before 2005, maybe like 2003-ish mm-hmm. or two. I don't know. Um, that w- a poem about going and being involved in World War Three. Oh and no! What that was going to mean? Oh yeah! Yeah, whoa, whoa. It was very deep. I'm sure it was horrible. What a statement! Thank you. I am so <laughs> so political at such a young age. Who knew? I know. Is there any chance I can convince you to read my very favorite poem from there? Oh, let me see. Let me see if I can find it. So I I do have a lot. So the I. I cut out pictures of um, things and I put them in there. Let me give you one. Um, I would on. like for it to be known that the the notebook in question is a spiral bound Care Bears notebook. That's correct. That it says cut out pictures of naked, not naked, but like women in their underwear. Huh? Which explains if that isn't telling, I don't lot. know what is. And it says keep out. Um, I have a picture <laughs> of Beyonce and it says, say have a rainbow. It does have a rainbow. I have a picture of Beyonce that says, this is Beyonce Knowles. She's cool, I guess. <laughs> Still true. Uh, Young yeah. you knew what was up. Well, I didn't seem too enthused about it, which is a very unpopular opinion. Which actually is <clears throat> going to feed right into my topic for today. Ooh. We're not quite there yet, but stay tuned. How do you feel about your topic? <clears throat> I feel good about it. It is not something that I'd heard of prior to trying to come up with something to talk about for this uh-huh. week uh-huh but in the midst of you know we're recording a little sooner than usual and just wanting to keep it kind of interesting and fun this came out and i'm really excited about it <laughs> i just found the poem <coughs> i just found the poem i reserve the right to cut this out by the way deal <laughs> <laughs> this is I, this might have been the one i threw up into my arm this is called the best poem in the world <laughs> yes <laughs> This is it. A rubber band is plastic. My sheets are made of silk. Erasers are elastic. And cats like to drink milk. My fingernails are chipped and bare. My eyes are a big green blob. When you're sick, you need care. My sister is a slob. (laughs) This is the last, (laughs) the last stanza is the smelly telling. Um, Oh, uh uh-huh. Sorry. So we have my sister is a slob. The smelly cat is smelly. If you're gay and you're a girl, you have a wife. There is lint in my belly. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the bottom it says, this poem is the story of my life. Facts. (laughs) Cold, hard facts. You heard it here, folks. First, folks. Yes. Um, I know I gave you the right to edit that out, but we might have to keep it in. I mean, it's too good. I mean, it's brilliant. I don't know whatever happened to you like do you still write Saturday. poetry no i do not i've That's given it up shame you, you need to kind of start when you're on top <laughs> start well you know stop while you're ahead yeah i don't know that i'd be able to top that material unfortunately i mean at this point in your life you'd have to get back to practicing and paying attention to yeah. politics and if um any teamsters that are listening have really, really funny uh, excerpts from Ooh. their diary. Please take pictures on Instagram and tag us because it is so priceless. Even like birthday cards, Christmas cards, yep. all of that stuff is so funny. I think we need to keep everything 
Oh, absolutely. Because then you can have a podcast and read it on your podcast. No, it's so interesting. I was at my dad's house and I was going through like all my old boxes of stuff and I keep Mm -hmm. everything. Um, but my old boxes of stuff from like middle and high school. And I have all of these notes that are folded in all these really intricate ways because that's what we did. And um, <laughs> I found this one note to somebody. Um, but I was like having this bad day. I was like, I got an A minus on this test. Oh, and God. Oh, <laughs> like, I got an A minus. I could read it like in my grumpy mm-hmm. eighth grade voice where mm-hmm. I was like, mm-hmm. I got an A minus. Yeah. The teacher doesn't like um, me. And I was like trying to make it a bigger deal than it really was, even yeah. though at the time, like I still knew it wasn't a big deal. I yeah. just really. You just needed something to feel uh, upset about. about. Yeah. I have a story in here where my sister, my mom tells my sister she can't take a drink upstairs. So while they're arguing, I say, don't worry, Hannah. This is telepathically. Right. Don't worry, I got you. So then I try to sneak the drink up there while they're fighting, and then I spill it all over the stairs. (laughs) (laughs) And so that didn't go well. No, no, I can Um, see that not going well for you. But I think, you know, we're all better for it. So keep that in mind. You know, you're a big journaler. Uh, I am. If you're if you're doing it for like mental health purposes, never read that shit again. No, burn it at the end. <laughs> Don't do that to yourself. Do not go back and read it. Well, but I would say high school and under is appropriate. Oh, absolutely. No, my recent journals. Like I have this one really large journal that I was gifted in like 2012 or 13. Mm-hmm. And it's leather bound and it's beautiful. Love and it's bone. like seeing me through all these relationships. And I only ever pick it up and write in it like when mm-hmm. things are really good. If oh, things wow. are bad, then I have all these other like teeny tiny little journals that I write in mm-hmm. and then promptly lose because I don't want to, you know, keep up with that. But um, this big leather journal has been around for almost 10 years now, mm. and I really just want to fill it up and like get it over with. Mm-hmm. Never go back and read that shit. No, never go Ever. back and read it. It was so bad for my mental health. So bad. Our and good... I like skipped around, but still no. horrible. I love our good friend, uh, names rhymes with Boston. Uh-huh. He keeps... <laughs> Our good friend Boston, uh-huh. his um, he keeps the tiniest notebook in his Aww. pocket always, just to write shit down. My dad also does that. So it must cute. be a real cute guy thing. Yeah, <laughs> I love my friends. <laughs> um. Anyway, let's get into some shit. Let's what do you it. got for me? So, <laughs> I really cannot express to you how much I wish that I had rewritten the intro to mine. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Because it falls right in line, but there's got to be a better way to deliver this. Instead, we're going to read exactly what I wrote. Please do. My body's ready. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So um, I have a personal pet peeve to share. Is it something I just did? No. Okay. (laughs) No, but it's about being angsty and like... (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, and that is that I absolutely hate, like, the dare to be different mantra. Mm-hmm. Like, the, I am so cool and no one gets me. I'm just different. Like, mm-hmm. there, it's an age-appropriate thing. You're allowed right. to be angsty until college and then you need to get the fuck over it. <laughs> <laughs> You're so not wrong. <laughs> um, but, like, do you remember the t-shirts that were, like, swim the other way? 
And it was a whole school of fish swimming one way. And inevitably, another fish was, like, swimming the opposite mm. direction. They were bright colored. and Mm-mm. If they didn't sell it at Hot Topic, I don't know about it. Uh, they probably sold it. <laughs> <laughs> you actually still have the shirt. Yeah, it's in my... I'm wearing it right now. <laughs> um, but, like, they resonated with us so deeply at one point, And now they feel so cliche. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all different, and that's, like, the whole fucking point. Mm-hmm. I feel so seen. Exactly. Um, but we are also pack animals, and we desire connection and belongingness. Yes. So, really, what these, like, dare-to-be-different shirts and bags and hoodies and, like, whatever else we had that made us stand out was to attract people who were also different mm-hmm. than yes. us. Or than, Gotta find your, like, the mainstream, your right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um... Today, I want to talk about the power of conformity. Mm -hmm. Very specifically, we're going to talk about a research study that was done in the 1950s that's called the Ash Conformity Experiments. Mm -hmm. Um, But more broadly, like how this lens helps us see ourselves within social groups and society. Mm -hmm. So Solomon Ash wanted to know to what degree a person's own opinions are influenced by those of groups. Okay. Well, we already know that individuals have a tendency to follow unspoken rules and behaviors of a social group that you belong to, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I am a cisgendered queer woman, mm-hmm. so how am I expected to behave? Like, what are the uh, social rules of being a queer woman? Mm-hmm. Well, you wear flannel constantly, obviously. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> That's the uniform. It, exactly. I'm wearing a plaid blazer right now. Mm-hmm. Like, it just... It is you what it is. You gotta look gay. You gotta follow these. Well, and it's also about finding your people. Oh, absolutely. We had the um, in in college we started saying Yahtzee. Like when you <laughs> when you find you know when you spot somebody else who you believe to be queer, it makes you feel safe. Yeah, makes you feel not alone. And exactly. also, you're like, can we date? Right, Yahtzee. Yeah, Yahtzee. Yep. Um, no, it's so funny. In episode one, where we're talking about um, the wandering womb, mm-hmm. and you're like in the bingo card oh, of the yeah. wandering womb, <laughs> yeah. Yahtzee. Yeah. Which made complete sense to me. Like, I totally got that. Yeah. So I'm glad that we're like now explaining that. Oh, yeah, I did say that. You did, which yeah. is hilarious. Yeah. And like, it works so well. Yeah. And I think everyone got it, obviously. But why do we say Yahtzee? Mm-hmm. And it's because all because the reasons of God. you just named. But there are specific rules and behaviors in queer spaces that just don't exist in straight spaces. Mm -hmm. Like going to a queer bar as a queer person, you don't want to see straight like bachelorette parties. Oh, yeah. That's the worst. I mean, it's a queer space. Like honor the queer space. And especially before marriage equality was a thing. Well, that was, I mean, even still very disrespectful. Well, and I'm thinking like after the Pulse shootings, when mm-hmm. everyone was already so afraid to go back into queer spaces, yeah, oh, like yeah. this was historically a safe space for us to mm-hmm. be seen and to be a community. Yeah. And suddenly you don't feel safe. And then you really don't feel safe when unknown straight people come in, yeah. cis straight people, not right. just, you know, straight people. Um, so if I'm around other queer people versus being the only queer person in a, in a group, I'm going to behave differently. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to be a little bit more guarded. Um, if I didn't know, I might still have on my flannel, obviously, but, um, like the way that I communicate might be a little bit different. Yeah. Like that. Um, because there's also like queer coding 
yeah. that you oh, see yeah. in movies and TV shows that kind of signify that someone's queer mm-hmm. without them having to really say it. Mm-hmm. So the same is true for any rural community. Like being around deaf people or neurodivergent people, you follow those social rules mm-hmm. so that you fit in with the, commu- with the group and with the community. And you pick up on them, right? Yeah. So what Ash wanted to know was how does pressure from a group lead people to conform even if they know the rest of the group is wrong? Uh-huh. So to preface... It's like if so-and-so jumped off a bridge, would you would jump you? off a bridge too? The answer... It's Probably. No. Oh. <laughs> Am I attached to anything? That would be my first question. <laughs> what are my options? Fair. That would be a great question. Uh, how deep is the water mm-hmm. below would be my, if it's, yeah. Girl, you are not jumping, not off, jumping a off a bridge. Do not play. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, to preface, I don't really love this study. And Mm -hmm. we will talk about all of the reasons why, but it does bring up a really interesting topic. Okay. So Ash structured his experiment using the easiest task that he could think of. And he asked people to compare a line, we'll call this line X, Mm -hmm. with lines A, B, and C to see which line was the closest in length to X. So soup simple. Soup Um, dupes. Soup dupes. To establish a baseline, he asked a group of participants to individually, like in separate rooms, identify 18 times... Which X line was most similar to A, B, and C? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So when he did this experiment with just people individually, he had a 99% accuracy rate, which I guess it sucks to be that one guy who guessed the line or who second guessed like, Bill, get out. <laughs> you screwed our whole data. <laughs> what Ash then did is he started his trial, which included 123 men. There were 50 participants. I know you're already Um, making a face. Yeah. So it included 123 men. 50 of them were participants or like the study research participants. And then there were like, so 73 actors, which he called Confederates. I hate that. I figured out why. Anyways, so he um, broke the participants and actors into groups and told them that they were partaking in a visual perception test. Okay. So with these lines, like you want to see, I guess, their eyes, their eyeballs. The groups were each, of course, given 18 tasks and the actors were given or told to give the correct answer six times. So the groups were like three to five people and one person in the group was being researched and the other three to five were... Um, like these actors. Paid participants. Right. Who knew so what was less up. than half the time they're choosing the right answer. So this like random guy who's like, no, you're wrong in his mind. So they're all giving these answers out loud. Right. So they're all okay. giving these answers out loud. They're sitting in a row and they go down the row and um, say the answer, you look at X and you look at A, B, and C and you're like, oh, it's obviously B. These two lines are the same length. Yeah. And then person number one says the answer is A. Mm -hmm. Person number two says the answer is A. Person number three says the answer is A. It's your turn. Are you going to say the answer is A or are you going to say the answer is B? Right. That's a mind game situation. Exactly. Don't. I. Ah, that sucks. I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I I mean, I was thinking about it and I think that I really enjoy being right. Mm -hmm. So I probably would still give the correct answer just because I don't. Like, I hate being wrong. Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends because I, I, 
really wonder about these test subject and like all these case study situations like what are they promising these people are they like right. you're gonna get a 15 dollars subway sandwich gift card <laughs> i might guess a yeah but if it's a little bit more um credible then i might fight more yeah absolutely the other 12 times oh so they were given 18 tasks the actors gave the correct answer six times in total but the other 12 times they gave the wrong answer to see if the participant would also give the wrong answer or if he would give the right answer so these 12 times are called the critical trials ash found that participants would get the wrong answer by agreeing with the actors Mm -hmm. in eight out of the 12 trials okay so So a couple times he's like i'm gonna stand my ground right like if it's super obvious yeah you know if the answer is a and everyone else is picking c and c is super short Sure. Sure. 75% of people conformed at least once. So only 25% of people were very resolute and like, nah, I'm not going to be hashtag different and give the, I'm just going to give the right answer every time. Sure. 5% of people conformed every time. 5%. Yeah. So 5% were like every single time I'm going to agree with the rest of the group. Okay. I've seen this study in a waiting room situation where Hmm. people stand up when they hear a bell and so it's imagine if you go into the doctor's office and they're like okay have a seat and you're like thanks and then you go sit down and then a bell rings and everybody else in the waiting room stands up and then you're like what the fuck is happening (laughs) and then the second time you're like well i guess this is what we have to do (laughs) yeah and i mean that's so weird because it's absolutely like on the same vein Mm mm-hmm it's conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's social conditioning. Yeah. Um, it almost reminds me of, I think it's Pavlov who, no, Pavlov. that's the dog. But yeah, it's social conditioning. I wonder, you know, if then all the actors were to be removed and only leave people who are participants but have been socially conditioned. Oh, If they yeah. would continue to stand at the bell. Oh. We'll do this experiment at our live show <laughs> and see what happens. Now, if actors answered different, but like still gave the incorrect answers. So... If you've got five people and one of them says A, another one says C, the correct answer is B, you're more likely to give the correct answer because people are already disagreeing. Sure. Or if you have two participants instead of just one. So if there are two people who are being experimented on. Oh, yeah. Then they're like in a band together and feel that confidence. Yes. Power in numbers. Yes. Even if they don't know what the other person's about to say, though. So you have Mm. to have established some kind of trust, secret coding Uh or trust Mm -hmm. with this person. A little Yahtzee thing happening. Exactly. Mm -hmm. At that point... um, the probability of the participant answering wrong went down tremendously. Like only 5% of the subjects missed the trials when two participants were included in the study. So they found that it had to be a group think issue and the participant had to be the only one to disagree. Um, something to note is that when lines A, B, and C were more similar in length and therefore harder to judge, conformity increased. Mm-hmm. So, which could be interpreted to mean that if you're not entirely certain, you're going to look to others for confirmation, yeah. which makes sense yeah. Like, oh, yeah, logically. So several people have repeated this experiment, including Allen and Levine in 1968. In their version of the experiment, they introduced one uh, actor who gave the correct answer when the others gave an incorrect answer, and the participants were about 30% more likely to give the correct answer. I'm sorry, did you say Adam and Levine? 
Alan and Levine. Oh, I'm like, like Adam Levine. <laughs> I may have accidentally said Adam and Levine. I meant uh, to say Alan and Levine. No, I think you did. I think my brain was just like, <laughs> hey, he's a handsome Adam, man. say you. <laughs> um, what's funny about this to me is that one of their actors was always wearing thick rimmed glasses in mm. their experiment. So they would have um, this one actor who appeared maybe mildly visually impaired okay who gave the correct answer oh yeah and the other actors would still give the incorrect answer um Mm. so more people agreed when given the space to give the right answer but there were still people unconvinced even though he gave the right answer Hmm. and they were still likely to go with the majority the majority well that's insecurity and they should go to therapy well, it's also fascinating because I think it goes back to disability and ableism. You think so? Well, because if you see someone who's visually impaired but giving the same answer as you, do you want to align yourself with... Well, I think the opposite. I think that maybe the other people can't see as well as the guy who has the glasses. Oh, but why would you choose them then? No, I would choose the guy with the glasses. I mean, I would choose also, the guy he's with the right. glasses. He's and also he's Because he's the one that's choosing the right answer, right? Right, but not everybody did. Even if it was the right answer. Right. I'm only speaking for me. Oh, okay. Yeah, you would have gone with the guy with the glasses. Yes, I would have. Yeah, for sure. me too. Regardless, the presence of an ally decreases conformity and the absence of group unanimity. Group uh-huh. Unanimity. Yep. Anonymity. Lowers, <laughs> lowers overall conformity as participants feel less need for social approval or what they call like the normative conformity. Mm-hmm. Say normative conformity. The normity. fast. No. (laughs) Okay. So also, Hogg and Vaughn repeated this experiment in 1955. Anything to say about their names? I mean, (laughs) I'm working on it. It's cooking in my brain. Hogg, Vaughn. That's all I'll say for now. Okay. And found that conformity reaches its fullest extent at three to five person majority. Fullest extent with three to five majority. Yeah. Power in numbers. Adding more people has a little effect. So whether you're like a part of a one person in a group of five or a person in a group of 100, your chances of conforming are about the same, which I think is really interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. You know, this is probably, this is, well, there's a lot of reasons why, but this is, this reminds me of why we don't vote in open like town hall communities anymore. Exactly. Well, that's yeah. why it's so private. Because yeah, you're of the exactly right. That's exactly conformity. what Conformity. Mm-hmm. Hashtag problematic. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting into so much more of that, but Mm -hmm. you're exactly right. Um, In fact, I had even written almost that exact thing and then took it out. (gasps) But it's also why agencies will do um, anonymous surveys. Mm -hmm. It's because if you think that people are going to see your results and see what you said, then you're less likely to give, you know, the uh, answer. Sure, yeah. So the big takeaway here is that this say suggests that we will purposefully do things we know are wrong or say things that we know are wrong to conform within a group. We are less likely to conform when we know that there is someone else in the group who shares our opinions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a lot of this is not actually useful. Um, <laughs> good. Oh, I, good. <laughs> I know I just laid all of this out and put like a really pretty bow on it, but there's some major issues with this. Mm-hmm. First, it's just a theory and the test was done really poorly. Okay. Uh, right. Like it's all, it's men, all men, right. And they were all in the same age group and basically the so- same socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. Um, so they basically duplicated 
123 Kevins. And mm-hmm. we're like, Give this right, to Kevin. here we go. Yeah. Um, it has been reproduced and found to have somewhat similar results, but none were quite as drastic as the first group from the 1950s. Some people pointed out that this might actually have more to do with the 1950s I was than it about does to say, with the test subjects. God, it's, that time was all about fitting in. That's like the meet the cleavers era. And it was like the anti-communist witch hunt, red scare, Marxism. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. not Marxism. Um, McCarthyism. I mean, it's all about fitting in and like laying low. Exactly. No one wanted to be pointed out as like not upholding American Mm -hmm. values. Yeah. So there was already a fear of not fitting in or being accused of thinking differently. The most recent time um, I was able to find that someone recreated this experiment was the early 1990s. And that's when they found that conformity has its upper limit of like five. Got it. Um, And anything beyond that is fine, but it doesn't really change. Yeah. You know. So, um, so clearly, some of the findings have stood the test of time, and that's what we're going to talk about. Um, but it just isn't the most reliable research study to have ever been done. Sure. It's just the first like yeah. it, um, which I think is cool. So other interesting things to note here. In terms of gender, the first group with Ash was all males. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does this change when you factor in females? Now, several articles I read referenced a similar study done with females. With but all, I was like, not, cis... What? Like, all cis... Um, yeah. Women? Yeah. Okay. Um, but I was not able to find the actual research article to confirm this, mm. um, which I think might also speak to how difficult it is to find research articles without being in a higher education institute. Sure. Anyways. Um, But I think what's interesting about that is, according to the article I read that referenced this other study, Mm -hmm. um, men are more likely to agree with men. Women are more likely to agree with women. But males show about half the same effect as females. So males are half as likely to conform as females are. Oh, I hate. I hate. I don't like. Yeah, it's not great. That's... But, disappointing to me well i think it's about moment. how men are socialized like men are socialized to be leaders oh. and like amy schumer says it best she's like men are not um men are not taught to hate themselves right mm-hmm. that's exactly what it is men are not taught to question and doubt themselves the way mm-hmm. that women are mm-hmm. like women are taught to be small and mm-hmm. men are not they are encouraged to take up all the space mm-hmm. and all the room so if I find that other article, I might come back and reference it. Okay. But how, does, how else does this research impact the way we think about conformity? Really quickly, one last thing about why this wasn't great is the line test is like super low stakes. If you get it wrong, you think you're there for a visual perception test. You mm-hmm. might get frustrated or doubt yourself, but ultimately... Yeah, worst case scenario, you don't get your Subway gift card. Right. Um, and once you learn that it's a social experiment, you're fine. Like, or a subway. Or a subway, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about low stakes, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but what if the stakes are greater? Mm-hmm. Um, like, what if it's a Panera gift card? I was about to say that. We got to go high. <laughs> got to go shoot for the Panera. Some of this, it's hard to do a true experiment because you can't control enough variables to get solid data to do. Mm -hmm. And instead, you'd have to do a qualitative study. 
Um, but it would be a really great dissertation topic to look at like this group think and conformity. Sure. And I'm sure a lot of that research is already being done. Um, that was not the point of today's podcast episode. <laughs> we will have to come back to more of that. I wanted to start us at the very beginning here. Sure. There's also an interesting question to be asked about why people would conform um, if it was such a low stakes thing. Like, if it doesn't matter in the greater scheme of things, why would you conform? It's just another question I have. So there's obviously an element of peer pressure here that might help explain why adolescents and adults conform to peer pressure and do things that they know to be wrong. Now, I'm very wildly speculating because this wasn't mentioned in the research specifically, uh, but what we know from other research is that connection can be traced back to safety. So like there's safety in numbers. We know that humans are wired for connection and connection often means learning to fit in. Mm-hmm. Even the dare to lead crowd is looking for other people to be different with because oh, yeah. you want to be together and yeah. you want to agree with people. Yeah. So you start looking for people that you agree with. Um, there's also an interesting thought to be had about bullying and mob mentalities when we think about um, wanting to connect with people or even conforming to those that you're consistently around, it might be interesting to do more research about like how these people come together and conform and then use that to try and get other people to join them. Mm. I don't know. Join me. Yeah. Well, I do think about the, I mean, back to your original point at the beginning, even talking about spotting your people, right? Right. It is about safety and it it is about feeling like you've got somebody to go through this whole thing together. I remember um, Ray and I were in, oh my God, we were in Myrtle Beach. Yikes. We were in Myrtle Beach. So Ray is my fiance and he's a black man. And we were in a dueling piano bar Oh, and I, I miss going to dueling I piano know. bars. Okay. But I mean, it's just like a sea of white people. And right. like this guy, this, you know, black man came up to Ray and was like, hey, man, like, what's up? And Ray was like, hey, like, do I know you? <laughs> and he was like, no, but like, you know, like I'm here, like I got you. Yeah. So they ha- he like literally intentionally approached Ray to be like, just so you know, I'm here if you need me. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah I Which love that. I had never, I mean, and, and, and it, I'm assuming I've never had a specific conversation with Ray, but you're always kind of looking for. Well, I think that like women do that too in crowds of men. If you see mm-hmm. another woman, yeah, especially if she seems uncomfortable, you might like uh, the other day I was in my living room and there was a woman outside who was fighting with. Uh, I assume a partner or boyfriend or something. Yeah. And I went outside to check on her because that's what you do when yeah. you're looking out for people. Absolutely. Um, so- I definitely understand the idea of, of relating to people who are like yeah. you. Yeah. Although sometimes that can be taken in a completely the other direction, which is not where we want to go. Well, but I think what's interesting here and maybe part of what ties some of this in together, because we're talking about conformity and connection, mm-hmm. but what happens when you are connecting with a group of people who then like you have things in common with, mm-hmm. right. And then they all start saying something that you feel deeply is wrong. Do you still go along with them? Mm-hmm. Which I think it's I'm not saying mm-hmm, like you do, but <laughs> no, I know. I mean, it goes back to like last week we talked about, um, the, the kid that cat called us from the back of the truck. Right. You know, um, 
do you act in that moment? Sometimes it takes a minute to process, like, you know, just kind of going over in your head how to react to certain situations. Yeah. Like if you go into this experiment and you expect that everyone's going to be telling the truth Mm -hmm. and you expect that people are going to be seeing the same thing that you're seeing in regards to these lines, and then all of a sudden they answer, they give the wrong answer, your brain doesn't really have the time to process and say, wait, what's going on right now? Mm -hmm. As much as it is, you now have to give an answer. Well, and also you've already given that person credibility based off of certain things that you might believe them to be like, or, you know. Yeah. So, I mean, they were all males. They, you know, were about the same age. Mm -hmm. They, um, I think the study was then later duplicated uh, with college students. Mm -hmm. So you expect them to know the answer. And so when you prepare yourself to respond in a certain way, and then other people don't meet that expectation, I can understand why that would be like, what do you do in that moment other than conform? Yep. Lastly, and maybe even on a lighter note, I want to look at this whole experiment as kind of a metaphor. Um, Because as I was reading through it, I was thinking about neurodivergent people. Mm -hmm. So people whose brains just don't process things the way that neurotypical brains do. So neurodivergent people might be uh, people who are autistic or ADHD, dyslexic, others. Mm -hmm. Just generally speaking, people whose brains process information in the world in a way that is atypical. I was thinking about how someone whose brain does not process information the same way that other neurotypical brains do, mm-hmm. how they would respond in this setting. Sure. Um, and then I realized that this would actually be a great metaphor for neurodivergence. Like first, um, many neurodivergent people have this struggle with understanding why and how neurotypical people say and do things. Sure. Navigating kind of the underworld of societal norms, right? You said this thing, but it doesn't mean this thing. So what does it mean? Yeah. Right. So thinking about this line test, you, I know that this is the thing that you meant to say, mm-hmm. like this is the correct answer, but you said this other thing. Mm-hmm. And then having to process quickly what that means and then apply it. Um, there's also this phenomenon of masking, which is associated with being neurodivergent and requires neurodiver- neurodivergent people to try and fit in with neurotypical people without necessarily understanding the purpose of what they're doing or why. Mm-hmm. For example, like mimicking facial expressions or body language because they've studied other people doing it. Mm -hmm. So you could share this example of presumably neurotypical people being put in a position where they're having to mask Mm -hmm. in order to conform. Sure. Um, It isn't true masking, just uh, maybe a useful tool or metaphor if you're a neurodivergent person who's trying to explain how it feels to be neurodivergent. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so that is connection and conformity. Very cool topic. Thank you. Very, very cool. I liked that. Thank you so much. I am really scared about intersectionality this week. (laughs) Um, Scared in what way? Well, because I'm going to be talking about child marriage. Oh, I don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't love it. I am going to go ahead and do a trigger warning, of course. Oh, Um, yeah. We'll talk about ages of consent versus ages of of marriage um there's a lot of legality involved but just doing kind of a general uh warning at the beginning um this might be hard for some people to hear about yeah 
I know that you're going to specify in just a second, but are we talking about global child marriage? Yeah, I don't love focusing on only certain parts of the world with this because I don't think that that's necessarily fair. Right. My focus is on kind of throughout history, but specifically the examples I'm going to be giving are from the U.S. Okay. Okay. Which I think is important for people to hear because we need to realize that this shit happens on our own soil. I'm also going to get another white claw. Perfect. According to the United Nations Sexual and Reproductive Health Agency, or UNIFPA, quote, factors that promote and reinforce child marriage include poverty and economic survival strategies, gender inequality, sealing land or property deals, or settling disputes. Control over sexuality and protecting family honor, tradition and culture, and insecurity, particularly during war, famine, or epidemics. Other factors include family ties in which marriage is a means of consolidating powerful relationships between families, unquote. So that's that's a a whole lot. Yeah. Are we going to unpack that? We are. Oh, you know, it's, uh, we, we're not going to be able to get to everything. And like I said, a lot of these are going to be a little bit more modern situations because I, I wanted to shine that light on it that like, listen, this isn't something that happened yeah. X number of years in the past. It's still happening. You know, I think it's interesting that we really love assuming that nothing bad happens in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anything bad has ever happened, it was a very long time ago. And therefore, yeah. we don't need to worry about it. Sure. So I'm I'm really interested to see. This is super interesting. And it had me thinking about a lot of topics and conversations that I normally wouldn't, of course, have come across right. on my daily basis daily life thinks (laughs) yeah uh, child marriage is defined as quote marriage or similar union formal or informal between a child and an adult or another child under a certain age typically age 18 end quote so when i started researching one of the things i was most interested in was what was the legal age of marriage And what I found was, in many countries, the age of marriage vary by gender, which was Uh -uh. icky to me. So, for example, in Moldova, which is in Eastern Europe, and you might know from 90 Day Fiance, (laughs) um, has a legal marriage uh, age of 16 for women and 18 for men. Uh, That really grosses me out. Yep. The majority of countries, however, have the legal age of 18 for marriage. However, many countries have exceptions with parental consent. It's so interesting. I had a friend in high school who got married at 17, and her parents oh, wow. signed the papers. Yeah. Are they still together? They are still together. Oh, wow. They're was still he very also happy. underage, or was he? He was 18. 18. They had some really extenuating circumstances. Um, but, you know. So there seemed to be, quote, accommodations mm-hmm. for the rule, right? These are exceptions for the rule. Right. So a lot of times it's due to pregnancy. Okay. Due to the, the both partners being within a certain number of years of each like, other, of each other. Yeah. Um, or with parental consent. A lot of times, many of those are still problematic. Yeah. Which we will cross that bridge. Yeah. So for example, in Australia, the age of marriage is lowered to 16 for individuals who have parental consent. South Africa's legal age is 21. However, you can marry 15 for women and 18 for men with parental consent. 
Some places have the accommodation for pregnancy. Just, I mean, so the people I know who got married really young were all consenting. Uh-huh. And, you know, it wasn't too skeevy in any way. Mm-hmm. But just imagine, like, consenting and wanting to get married at 18 or 19 or even 20 and 21 mm-hmm. versus who you are now and where you are now in your life. Yeah. Like, I am such a different person. Oh, my even God. If I, I am so grateful. I didn't make any stupid decisions. My parents didn't get married. Like my mom was in, I think she was 35 when she had me. She didn't get married until she was 31, I think. So in my mind, it was never, I was never in a hurry. No, my parents got married. Uh, My dad was 40 when they got married. So Mm -hmm. yeah, they were older. And um, I think that, I mean, we'll talk about marriage at some point, but um, I just think it's really interesting the way that we perceive it based on our own lived experiences. Oh, for sure. There are a lot of variations here when it comes to accommodations. Many, many options in the United States. Things vary by state to state, like I just said. And how does child marriage affect those who participate? That was also something that I was interested in learning about. Often the stress, anxiety, and trauma of a persuaded or forced child marriage can cause mental health issues with long-term effects. I mean, you don't say. Right. Like you're being forced into this marriage with an older person. Well, and we also have to remember that uh, our brains are still developing. And oftentimes um, children under or people in general are often being groomed. Right. Right. So there's a lot of difference of opinion, maybe perhaps in that moment as well. It's going to happen both ways. There's a ton of variance for for situations like this. Oh, absolutely. Child marriage can prevent opportunities and education, specifically for girls. Girls are more at risk for this anyway, and and now in this situation, it would be amplified. Pregnancy is also an effect. So childbirth for children is dangerous, and they can be also like considered high risk. Yeah. I found it interesting because there are, there's basically two camps, specifically in the U.S., for Uh, people who are opposed to marriage under the age of 18 and people who are pro marriage under the age of 18. I am so interested to hear what that perspective is because Mm -hmm. I assume that it's the pro-life crowd. Well, and a lot of times it is. It's kind of coming from the far right the majority of the time. However, there is in California and somewhere, and I'm doing this off memory. This isn't in my notes, so I'm paraphrasing here, but in California, as well in the north, I think like Maryland, there are are advocacy groups that belong, I believe, to the either the Independent or the Democratic Party who argue that um, the age of marriage should go along with the age of consent. So in certain cases, those are 16 and 17. So they believe that those um, people or children should be able to, to get married, to get access to... Um, marital benefits, well, um, healthcare. I think it's so interesting because, and I don't think we've talked about sex ed at this point in the podcast, no. um, in any of our episodes, but let's, but let's get, let's get into it because I was raised in abstinence only education. Yeah. Ugh. Um, because Same, we North live in Carolina. North Carolina. Yeah. Um, so I could see, now, I don't see any leftists being like, oh, well, let's make marriage this age because virginity is real and 
we care about it. Mm-hmm. But I just think it's interesting that if you are teaching your kids that they need to be virgins when they get married. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, that also plays along with it. The idea of virginity is a social construct. It's fucked up. And fucked <laughs> Let's up. just say what it is. Right. But, the idea um, that you're taking something from somebody. Yeah. Or giving something to somebody. Yeah. No. Uh-uh. Uh, we need to be in a sex-positive environment that has nothing to... Like, marriage and sex are two very different things. Mm-hmm. Let's keep them as very different things. Yeah. Separation of church and state, people. <laughs> Let's go. Yep. Wikipedia has an interesting quote related to child marriage and young boys that I'm going to read to you. Okay. Quote, there is little research on boys and child marriage, but effects on boys include being ill-prepared for certain responsibilities, such as providing for the family, early fatherhood, and a lack of access to education and career opportunities. So let that digest for a moment that the young girls who are at risk are facing essentially life and death health risks. Right. And the, and the young boys, their effects are also terrible, of course, sure. but theirs are like, they're not going to be prepared to have a household. That well, was troubling for me. That's so troubling. And I think the thing that my brain immediately jumped to was their mom or parent had taken care of them mm-hmm. their entire lives. And now yeah. they're jumping into a marriage. Presume, like we haven't talked about queer identities and all of this. Yeah, this is very um, cis. But so what my mind immediately jumped to was like, young boys living with their moms and their moms mm-hmm. do everything for them. Yeah. And of course we're not talking about gay marriage and child marriage because no. that's not part of this conversation. Now well, I'm sure that there is a space for that conversation. Yes. That and and thank you for making that differentiation because yes, we're very much talking about cis straight relationships and marriage. Marriage, yeah. Straight up. Right. Um but it's like the boys are moving from mom doing their dirty underwear laundry into (laughs) expecting their new wife to do it and i hate that yeah like of course they're not prepared to be the head of house because a what the fuck is that and b yeah they're babies Mm -hmm. yep problematic at best my friend the gender dynamic portion got me thinking about the age of consent as opposed to the age of marriage Mm -hmm. the age of consent in germany is 14 Okay. Their legal marriage age without parental consent is 18. Okay. With parental consent is 16. Okay. So there's some discrepancies there. Sure. Um, In the Philippines, the age of consent is 12. (gasps) However, people under the age of 18 cannot access reproductive health resources and contraception, even HIV and AIDS testing. Oh, that's highly problematic. Without parental consent. Why are there so many discrepancies? And- how many young people are actually getting married? Well, or wanting to engage in sexual relations with people and not having access to the things that they need in order to stay safe. Mm-hmm. Well, and I do think it goes back to religion, probably, because Germany is a very um, progressive. Yeah. I mean, like, and, and a lot of times in Europe, too, it's not as religious focused as somewhere like the U.S., where marriage and consent 
Like we live in the Bible Belt. We live in the Bible Belt and virginity, like you said, is very important in being, quote, intact, you know, for your spouse. For, for your spouse. Yeah. Where so that like, could be why, but 14 to me is, is still... It's still super young, young. Um, especially when you think Not, about brain development, like your frontal lobe doesn't fully develop until your 20s. Yeah. But I, I think that you're exactly right. And the difference is religion um, and how we perceive religion in the U.S. and the Bible Belt. Quote, the incidents of child marriage have been falling in most parts of the world. Oh, that's good news. 2018 data from the UNICEF shows that about 21% of young women worldwide, ages 20 to 24, were married as children. This is a 25% was that? 21% of young women, ages 20 to 24, were married as children. Wow. This is a 25% decrease from 10 years previously. The countries with the highest observed rates of child marriage below the ages of 18 were Niger, Chad, Mali, Bangladesh, Guinea, the Central African Republic, Mozambique, and Nepal, with rates about 50%. Wow. Niger, Chad, Bangladesh, Mali, and Ethiopia were the countries with the child marriage rates greater than 20% below the age of 15, (gasps) according to 2003 to 2009 surveys. Globally, an estimated 12 million girls annually are being married under the age of 18. Globally, what percent? 12 million girls. Oh, 12 million. Okay. So that's a lot to unpack. So let's just talk about the history. Well, right now I'm stuck on the 20% or 21%. That's one in five. Yeah. Wow. It's too many. Yeah, I know. Everything else after that was just kind of a blur. I was just one in It's a lot of information. So... (laughs) Let's talk about the history. Okay. In the pre-industrial revolution times, in many parts of the world, including India, China, and Eastern Europe, women tended to marry right after reaching puberty, Mm -hmm. often in their mid-teenage years. Where the majority of this was happening was in small rural communities. Um, This was the case well into the 19th century. I've often heard it accredited to the age um, expectations at the time, people weren't living as long. They're right. like, let's go ahead and have some babies, mostly Knock around reproductive um, bloodlines. Yeah. At this time, men usually married later because they were expected to have land, an education, and a household of their own. Girls were, quote, promised or often used as bargaining chips in relation to status. Mm-hmm. And in medieval times, it was common to marry even before puberty. We keep coming back to Greece. So let's go to Greece. Let's go to Greece. In ancient Greece, early marriage and motherhood for girls existed. Even boys were expected to marry into their teens. Early marriage and teenage motherhood were typical. This portion is from Wikipedia, by the way. It's a quote. In ancient Rome, females could marry above the age of 12 and males could marry above the age of 14. That's so young. I I hate that. Yeah. Is Hippocrates involved in all this? He doesn't. He's not invited to this party. Okay. Thank goodness. I would hate to hear what he I mean, had to he say was about all this. Totally there. Oh, for so. sure he was. Also, Rome, I mean, we talk about Rome every day, I feel like, <laughs> but Rome has its own laws. A lot of times the men were getting married later and later, but they were often having like sexual relationships with young boys. Yeah. So there's a lot of 
a lot of things happening. Well, and I was reading at some point that um, like our ideas of marriage are still relatively new. Mm -hmm. Historically, marriage, I think you said at the beginning, was about status or, you know, using girls as a bargaining chip to get whatever. Whereas now we think about marriage as being based in love and at least in U.S. white American society. Yeah, I would think general. Well, I don't know. Um, but I just think it's interesting the way that marriage has shifted, especially since ancient Greece, but certainly even much more recently yeah. um, in Eurocentric perceptions of marriage. Yeah. England was the first in Western Europe to create statutory rape laws and marital age laws. In 1275, sexual relations with girls under either 12 or 14, depending on interpretation of the sources, um, were criticized. A second law was made with more severe punishments for under the age of 10 in 1579. And in the late 18th and early 19th century, the British colonial administration introduced marriage age restrictions for Hindu and Muslim girls in the India subcontinent. But what I want to talk about, what I want to focus on, are the stories in the U.S. Because I think it's really important. Yeah. I want to talk about a badass bitch named Sherry Johnson. Oh, Sherry? Mm-hmm. Okay. She is incredible. I've literally spent the past like two days just listening to her speak. She has a TED talk. Yeah, she's, I mean, her energy is just phenomenal. And the fact that she's so positive after everything that's happened to her. Yeah. We need to feature her for our Woman Crush Wednesday. Yeah. On our Instagram or Woman Without Wednesday. objectifying her. Well, Woman. Is it women? Women admire. Women Wednesday. Women Wednesday, whatever we called it. Yes. The one time we've done it. I don't think we've Have done, we done it yet. yet. Nope. So we're <laughs> going to do Women Wednesdays. We are. Let's feature Sherry for Women Wednesdays. I think that's a great idea. Good job. Sherry is a survivor and an advocate of sexual abuse and child marriage. At the age of eight, Sherry was raped by <gasps> the bishop of her church. Oh, no. And later the deacon of the church. She was pregnant by nine gave birth at 10, was married at 11 on March 29th, 1971 in Tampa, Florida. Her mother made her wedding dress. Her mother made her veil. Her mother basically came together with the members of the church and said, what are we to do? Marriage is the answer. Um, There was an interview where Sherry had told her mom and her mom beat her essentially for telling lies about you know, the deacon of the church. So, so stories like that, it's very tragic. Who did she get married to at the age of 10? Was it the She deacon? got married to the deacon. Okay. Yes. Who was not, I mean, he was older. He was, I believe he was between 18 and 20. Okay. Um, also, she's 11. Ouch. What's interesting is that on the child's birth certificate, mm-hmm. when she was 10, they created the birth certificate uh, with Sherry's married name, but she wasn't going to be married for another year. Also, in order to be get something like that on a birth certificate, there has to be a judge involved. So all of this was pre-planned. All of this was known, essentially known, and they would have had to have some inside connections in order to make this happen. So they got married in the church, and she was forced to marry her rapist. She was pregnant again at the age of 18, and she had to quit school. Six children by the age of 17. Wait, we jumped from one to six really quickly. 
And finally, at 17, she divorced him and remarried the same year. And she says a quote, and and I'm paraphrasing here, but um, she says something like, who does an abused person marry? Another abuser. Right. So by the time she was 27, she had nine children. And all of this happened in the state of Florida. She finally was able to kind of divorce her second abusive husband. Correct. And um, has made it her mission to change laws to be at the forefront of this movement for child marriage or against child marriage i should say right right and she her story is so inspirational well it's so hard too because she should never have had to be the one to lead that charge and i think that that's one of the things that i hate most about this is that the survivors are the ones who have to advocate for change Mm mm-hmm Um, It's not the people who put them in this position who are reflecting and realizing that something is wrong here. It's, you know, the people who have suffered the most are the ones who then have to roll up their sleeves and make something change. And and her mother was an active participant, unfortunately. And this next story we're going to talk about as well. You know, it's people assuming that parental consent is going to be a buffer and that these parents have the their best their children's best interest at heart well is not true is simply not true a hundred percent of the time it's just not agreed and as much as i want to believe that parents always want the best for their kids parents can be misguided like even a parent thinking that they're doing what's right for their kid may just not objectively be what's right for their kid Mm -hmm. and that could come down to lack of education or lack of access to information or even you know conforming to whatever other people around them are encouraging them to do. Yeah. I'm sensing some intersectionality. Oh girl, I'm going. (laughs) Um, so this next story I'm going to be discussing is from unchained at last.com, which is a website devoted to telling the stories of people who suffered at the hands of child marriage. So these are firsthand accounts of, of stories. However, names have been changed. Places have been changed, so I don't have a ton of detail, actual detail about these people. Right. So this is from the perspective of, quote, Terry. I was raised in a family where abuse and neglect were normal. As a result, I was severely depressed, and at the age of 12, I attempted suicide. I called a local crisis hotline and spoke to a man who was a third-year missionary training student. He convinced me and my parents that he could provide counseling to me, and I didn't need the antidepressants and the doctor that the doctors had pres- prescribed. I saw him twice a week for counseling from then on. Later that summer, his apartment building caught fire and he convinced my parents to let him move into their basement. We then go into some sexual trauma. She was 12 years old when she first reached out to Correct. him. She became pregnant uh, right before she turned 14. Quote, my parents said I could only keep my child if I married him and that I had brought shame to my family. So in May of 1980, 1980, we went on a road trip so I could marry, so I could be married off. We first stopped in Kentucky, where the judge refused to do the ceremony due to my age. We drove to Alabama. There, a judge had no problem with the situation, and in a six-minute ceremony, I was married to a 28-year-old pedophile that abused me. She then goes into discussing some domestic violence. Uh, And essentially her parents are turning her back to him using the ceremony, using her marital status as you are no longer our problem. You need to take care of your shit at home, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is a, 
you said at the beginning that she grew up being abused. Correct. So I think that there's also the sense of if you don't know different, Mm -hmm. then how can you advocate for something else? Also, when you're 14 years old and married off, I mean, with no support system, and how do you even begin to wonder what it's like to leave that situation? Yeah. Eventually, I began counseling again to, quote, cure my depression and make me a better wife. My therapist asked me immediately how often my husband beat me. And when I said every day, he promised to help. He had a social worker waiting the next week when I walked into the office and I was taken to a shelter for battered children. Eventually, they removed my child from the home as well. So this is the portion that I wanted to talk about most. I, you just breezed on past and maybe this is what you're about to talk about but the fact that they removed her and not her kid like an abused woman having to leave her kid behind to go to a a battered yeah child shelter yeah an abused woman shelter well well so i think what it's saying is that she was she was they scooped her at the therapy session okay so they went back for her child okay i thought that there was some time between those two but there were not okay well, she's eventually. Right. So we don't know how long it took. but So, okay. yeah. So technically, but yes. But still, like, as a, a parent being separated from your kid and leaving your kid with an abuser for any length of time sure. has to be really traumatic. This is what blows my fucking mind. So she says, even though most child marriages like mine ultimately result in divorce, thank God, those divorces cannot be initiated by the children themselves. What do you mean? Meaning children don't have the ability to if file you're my divorce. parent and you sign me over to be married to this other person who's of age, my rights are not the same. As a 13-year-old person, you can't 14 get... or 15-year-old person, I cannot necessarily file for my own divorce. Until you're 18? Until you're of whatever age in that state. <gasps> that oh. is that not what? so problematic? <gasps> I'm like, my hands are in the air. I'm like, it's fucked up. Oh my gosh. I can't wrap my mind around There's so many loopholes. thought about it. No. Why? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we weren't educated about this. This does Mm -hmm. not happen in the U.S. What are you talking about? Nope. 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 But Terry goes on to kind of, you know, eventually she did get out of the relationship. She did do have a divorce. Um, but you know, essentially the rest of your life is affected and you are, your childhood is, is stolen from you. And, um, there are a a huge amount of people that are to blame and a lot of layers. How, how many people did this get past? Well, and thinking about complex PTSD or CPTSD, um, which is, so PTSD has historically been linked to like an event or, right. you know, a coupling of events in a period of time. But complex PTSD functions differently because it was over an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's there are therapies that you can do to help heal your PTSD and CPTSD. Yeah. But it is a long process. Sure. And even decades later, you can still be very easily triggered. Yeah. Like the trauma that these kids have to be experiencing and then will continue to experience potentially for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. I mean, Sherry had nine children by the, you know, three years younger than I am today. And now even if she is divorced or she is divorced, she still has to 
like care for these nine kids and meet their needs. Yeah. And regardless of what their relationship with her is like, I mean, she knows their their story and she has to carry that trauma on top of raising nine kids. Well, and 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 that's an a really good point too about she she really loves her kids, you can tell. Of course, yeah. But that's not always the case that can children can often be a really huge reminder of of unhealthy relationships and yeah yeah and i mean we know all the reasons that people might not want to parent children like either putting their kids up for adoption or um, having an abortion or whatever else Mm -hmm. and one of the big arguments is you know you wouldn't want a woman to have to carry her rapist's kid Mm -hmm. so i can't even imagine all the reminders so Lots and lots of therapy. Lots and lots Find of therapy. Find a really, really great therapist. Please do. I will end my segment tonight by stating this fact. My home state of Delaware, mm-hmm. New Jersey, Minnesota, and Pennsylvania are the only U.S. states which ban marriage under the age of 18 completely. <gasps> Bravo to those four states. Mm-hmm. How the fuck do we get the rest of the country on board? Yeah, they're working on it. Wow. Yeah. That was a really heavy, it very was. dark. Should I read another poem? Um, let's like let's sit with that for just a second before you read another poem because I feel like I need a minute to process. Okay. Um, so why don't we talk intersectionality and then do another poem like right at the very end? Girl, you were driving. I'm just a passenger. <laughs> So the conformity thing is the first thing I think of right off the bat. Right. Is like if people are telling you that this is an okay thing. I'm also thinking about teachers, oh, social workers. Yeah. People in the community that see Sherry being married to this 18-year-old when she's 11 and all of the things that they have to work through in their own mind about it being okay because they are married. Right. So to me, that that's that's one of the first things I thought of as far as. Well, it reminds me of like some of those social experiments where they're like, if you see something happening, how likely are you to stand up and point it out and say that that's wrong if no one else is? Yeah. Um, I forget what TV show or like little segment used to do that. But it was like, if you see a boyfriend yelling at their girlfriend, are Mm -hmm. you going to say it? The hidden camera show? Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, So that's what comes to mind for me, because if no one else is saying anything, Mm -hmm. it's really easy not to say anything. Sure. Um, However, when you realize what the consequences of not saying anything are, do you feel more compelled? And I use the teacher and, and social worker example because those are people who are kind of contractually obligated to... Uh, yeah, mandated reporters. Yeah, exactly. Um, but even family members and members of the church would have had to have known. And people were, like, literally still going to this church. Like, yeah. what? Yeah, and I think that it probably goes back to, you know, we're a part of this church. We have a community here. Mm-hmm. And... We can overlook this thing because, you know, it's still our community. And there's so much trust put into not only just religious leaders, but leaders in every community. Yeah. There's an automatic credibility that is given. It's like a get out of jail free card, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that it's so troubling in just the frequency with which it occurs around the world especially 
and and it doesn't sound like anywhere is really exempt from it at this point. Mm-hmm. Like this is gonna this happens everywhere. Yeah. Um, but I think what's problematic about it is that you're the first person that I've heard talk about uh, child marriage in the U.S. in this way. Mm-hmm. Now that's not to be confused with QAnon, who. Well, let me back up. So that's not to be confused with um, talking about like child sex trafficking. Sure. Child sex trafficking is a a whole other bear. Right. Like, Oh, yeah. Which I assume we'll get to at some point, probably a long time from oh. now, because I'm going to need a minute to recover yeah, from this one. I, I don't want to. <laughs> I know. But um, so but there's an issue with uh, sex trafficking mm-hmm. in our country and in yeah. lots of places in the world. Yeah. And then that has been used by uh, QAnon to, like, bring people in and then persuade them to believe other things, which is a really interesting, like, groupthink mentality. Yeah. And we can get into that later, too. But that's such a big topic. Yeah. So just thinking about all the different ramifications of this. It's pretty – it's more widespread than you might originally have thought. So – I'm also trying to bring it back in. So uh, history talks about it being like really popular in small rural communities, but also we did all kinds of shit back in the day. We used to like wash our clothes in urine and shit that doesn't make any fucking <laughs> sense. Yeah. Um. So I don't really give much credibility to how we used to do things because obviously we know better now. Except for apparently not. <laughs> well, and I think that Yikes. some of the big difference here is, sure, maybe this started a long time ago when people weren't living as long. Like, I've heard that argument before, like you said. Mm-hmm. Um, but now people are living longer. And we have neuroscience that tells us, like, when brains develop. And I think that, you know, teenagers are hormonal. And the age of consent is less of an issue if proper sex ed is provided and inclusive sex ed like trans queer issues um safe sex practices among all those different identities Mm -hmm. um but with abstinence only education followed by being raised in the bible belt like you're just asking for well and a lot of midwest states i mean you have to think about the a lot of the majority of the country is in rural or suburban, you know, yeah. cities are essentially the minority, even though they hold the majority of the of course, yeah. population. It's like, God, we're all going to school in probably really similar. Yeah. In some, in some ways. ways. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think that what this tells me is that we need to improve holistically like not just changing legislation Mm -hmm. but also looking at um how do we change our education system and how do we better you know advocate for young people who yeah don't know better who are being misguided and how do we raise our sons yeah differently right how do we educate our sons Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know excellent point okay I i feel like I've had a moment to breathe. Will you please share another poem with us? In lieu, I'm going to save my poetry for, I think, another episode because I think that we'll just space it out a lot. I don't want to, you know, I want to, I want to save some treatsies for later. (laughs) Please. Maybe one day I'll be inspired and go back and get my journal. Break that shit out, girl. Break it out. Oh my God. Great job today. 
great intersectionality portion. Oh, agreed. I mean, it got heavy. Got real heavy That's there okay. for a minute. A little weighted blanket. But we, uh, we're bringing it back up. Bringing it back up. Thank you guys so much for listening. I am so proud of this podcast. Honestly, the... The community. the community god i just i love everybody definitely follow us on instagram to see our um updates we post information about you know pictures from all of our episodes email us i want to hear from you message us slide into those dms slide into carrie ann's dms all of the things <laughs> <laughs> so thank you guys so much for listening if you support us blink twice and if you're out there keep listening Thank you for listening to Podcasts Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaud at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening. Welcome to Pineapple Pizza Podcast, where we serve up delicious slices of mythology, cryptozoology, and urban legends. Ashley is the Mythbuster. Tiresias is finally just like, it was you, Kay. (laughs) (laughs) Waterboard him with this magical gem that is not a testicle. Emily is a cryptid hunter. And it's this guy that's bending over and farting into the face of this absolutely <laughs> horrified Kappa. The cap is like, no! <laughs> In some stories, this long, narrow sheet of cotton is also your roll of toilet paper. But it's evil toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> and Lindsay is the storyteller. So put your trays in the upright position. We're flying back over to northern Italy. For a fun little legend that will have you rethinking water sports. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Am I pretty? I think I'm a snack. And she'd be like, what's a snack? Do you have candy? Pineapple Pizza Podcast. Stop on by for a slice, a story, and a laugh. Coming January 2021.